0: And thanks for having me. I was just saying to Daniel and the team um, what an admirer and fan I've been of the OTGR over the years. And the the first time actually I gave a presentation to the OTGR was probably about eight years ago when Phil Clark was still convening, and it was right at the beginning of my PhD, and I was just about to go off and do fieldwork, and I was kind of presenting some of my ideas. So it's nice to be back um, eight years later now and, and to kind of share some of the findings from that field work and from subsequent projects too. So I'm, I'm going to talk today about, about the research that I've been doing in northern Uganda for the past um, eight years or so, mainly in Acholi land, um, which as many of you will know is at the epicenter of the 20-year war between the Lord's Resistance Army and the government of Uganda, um, which lasted roughly between 1987, 2008, And what I've been exploring mainly through ethnographic research is the relationship between um, international and domestically driven transitional justice interventions and agendas and the plurality of ways in which communities across the region um, affected by violence construct and and experience uh, coexistence and justice and social repair um, in the context of their everyday uh, lives. And I, I want to touch on two main things really today. The first is, is to expose and critique some of the very oversimplistic depictions of Acholi perceptions of transitional justice, which I think continue to dominate debate and which are actually relevant to many other, many other developing world contexts. Um, and the second is to uncover some of the stark uh, dissonances between normative ideals linked to transitional justice efforts um, and some of the realities of post-conflict life. And then maybe in the discussion we can talk a little bit more about this, this question that I'm particularly interested in, which is all about you know, how and in who is interest the local is framed in, in, in transitional justice and how it's conceptualized. Um, I won't talk about the background to the conflict, just sort of suffice to say that you know many many of you will already know the war between the NRM government and the LRA was characterized by the, the brutal suffering. Of northern Ugandan civilians who really bore the brunt um, of, of, of both LRA and government violence, and at the peak of the conflict, roughly 90% of the Acholi population um, had been forcibly displaced into these squalid camps, um, where um, attacks by both sides were a, were, were a regular occurrence. Um, so. I mean, by two thousand and five, two thousand and six, I think it's fair to say that Uganda had really become sort of the uh, the transitional justice um, case study. Um, since the war ended in two thousand and eight, there's been this. There was a failed peace process. Um, the war ended in two thousand and eight when the peace process failed. Um, there was a, a military campaign against the LRA. The LRA uh, permanently relocated outside of Uganda. Um, and people have returned home or they've settled elsewhere. Um, but the, the failed peace process did produce um, a very important transitional justice legacy, um, and that was the agreement on accountability and, and reconciliation. Um, and that was signed in June 2007, um, and an implementing protocol was then signed in 2008. And superficially, at least, these were quite comprehensive um, uh, quite comprehensive accords, almost like an inventory of, of transitional justice measures. They're signed by both sides of the conflict. They propose national procedures for dealing with LRA and UPDF crimes, so domestic trials, um, a special, actually a special division of the uh, High Court of Uganda, an international crimes division, essentially a Ugandan war crimes court. So this, in combination with other mechanisms, including formalised traditional uh, rituals, um, a body to inquire into the past. It didn't quite say a truth commission, but a body to inquire into the past, and also reparations. And it also had a clause um, that instructed the government to amend the Amnesty Act. There's been a blanket amnesty in place since 2000 to amend that act in accordance with the principles of this agreement. But, I mean, I've long, long since concluded, based on numerous interviews with people involved in the drafting of that agreement, that um, this, uh, while these, these accords kind of showcase the transitional justice toolkit, they certainly um, were not rooted in any engagement with its normative underpinnings. So the overarching purpose, really, of these accords was not justice, but rather the codification of a strategy that at that point was beneficial both to the LRA and the government of Uganda that was becoming increasingly frustrated with the International Criminal Court. So the codification of an agreement to basically obstruct and evade the jurisdiction of of the ICC through a set of domestic transitional justice agreements that could be um, essentially controlled and contained. So quite a classic example of what Stephen Brown in the context of Kenya has referred to as transitional justice as subterfuge. Um, Now, regardless of the failure of the talks, Joseph Kony refused to sign the final peace agreement in 2008. The Ugandan government has still committed itself to implementing the AAR framework and to developing a national transitional justice policy, Uh, but in the absence of any significant political transition, there's been very little impetus amongst entrenched political elites for seriously moving things forward, and this is hardly surprising given the alleged role of the government um, and the army. Um, in war crimes committed during the conflict. So, Uganda is a pa- paradigmatic case of transitional justice without uh, without transition. So, since the Juba talks collapsed in 2008, policy formation on transitional justice, it's largely been a donor-driven, very technical affair. It's been incorporated into broader governance and peace-building programming. Um, one UN official described... Um, the transitional justice content in a government strategic review or strategic investment plan to me as a cut and paste from various donor manuals and the central interpretation of the um of transitional justice in this context seems to be it's, it's very technocratic it's around strengthening rule of law across the country through things like bureaucratic skills development and uh you know institutional capacity building and things But even there, progress has been very, very slow. And in September 2014, the justice law and order sector, they circulated a final draft transitional, national transitional justice policy amongst key stakeholders for comment. But not much has happened since. Um, The draft policy has now been sitting with the cabinet for a couple of years, um, waiting for approval. It has to be approved by cabinet um, before it can be handed to parliament to be debated. So it's, it's... I guess you know the situation today is that of all the modalities agreed upon in these uh, uh, accountability and reconciliation accords. So remember, it promises a truth body, reparations, formalised traditional um, uh, ritual or courts. Um, only the establishment of a special division of the Hi- of the High Court of Uganda has actually been realised, and that was that was supported heavily by donors very early on and moved quickly. So that was by 2011, that war crimes court um, was was in existence Uh, but but so far it's only there's only been one war crimes trial and that's the trial of Thomas Coyello. some of you may be familiar with that he's a mid-ranking LRA commander um but this this trial has been subject the subject of widespread controversy um and it's constantly being adjourned and at the moment there's actually still um in the pre-trial hearing stage um he's been in prison since 2000 and um, 2009 he's been in custody since 2009 um, and we can talk more about that case in the discussion if you're, if you're interested. It's a very interesting example of um, transitional justice gone horribly wrong. Um, there's been no uh, significant progress on, on initiatives aimed at reparations or truth-seeking or traditional justice. And I think the general consensus in northern Uganda among people that I spoke to and still speak to is really that transitional justice has been a huge flop. Um, you know, it's over-promised, it's under-delivered, it's politicised, it's failed to be relevant. It's, uh, there's some renewed interest now with the Ongwen trial at the ICC, but it's, that's, again, a very complex issue. Um, so I think two dominant stories continue to, to shape the way in which the Acholi are portrayed in post-conflict justice and accountability issues. And this is, again, this, is, this has been re-sparked, I think, by, by the ongoing trial and a renewed interest in the area. But both of these stories involve what, what E.P. Thompson referred to as terrible simplifiers, really, about the particular ways and traditions and needs of a very heterogeneous and, and diverse ethnic group. Um, Kieran McEvoy and Kirsten McConachie, they noted in other contexts that the construction of the local victim population during transitional justice debates reflects choices made by powerful actors managing the process, and I think this is very true in northern Uganda. So over the years, advocates of a more local form of post-conflict (coughs) justice have emphasised the restorative possibilities of both Christian forgiveness and Acholi reconciliation techniques. Mm-hmm. They're opposed to criminal trials. And So, for example, after the ICC warrants were, were, were issued, the Canada-based Institute for Global Issues, in association with the GULU, GULU's the main provincial town and provincial capital of Acheoli land, in association with the GULU NGO forum, produced a report expressing concern that the ICC might damage cultural identities and beliefs. In that region. Um, and, and these kinds of NGO reports are buoyed up by calls from local religious and traditional and, and political leaders who stress the cultural proclivity of the Acholi towards forgiveness and reconciliation. Um, and Adam Branch has argued very convincingly, I think, that such arguments comprise a, a pernicious and mendacious ethno justice um, agenda, which implies that basically all Acholi spontaneous, spontaneously adhere to this kind of single coherent system of justice. Um, and Kimberly Armstrong um, elaborates on the function of this kind of approach, and she's pointed out that this narrative comprises a set of deliberately culturalist claims that are reliant on what she calls <coughs> strategic essentialism. So with international judicial intervention in the form of the ICC, with this believed to represent actually quite a serious threat to peace building during the Juba Talks. Um, these oversimplified cultural depictions of the Acholi as having a specially ingrained capacity to forgive and to move on I think were also um, an appeal to advocates of, of prosecutorial criminal accountability to do no harm in this very difficult and, and complex situation. Now the second story about the Acholias is different, it, it's the one that's prono- promoted by international human rights activists and donors engaged in rule of law promotion and access to justice initiatives in Uganda. So in his book, Trial Justice, Tim Allen concludes that most Acholis want those responsible for terrible crimes to be held to account. And in northern Uganda, uh, as in Europe, it's possible for trials to contribute to peace building. And this sentiment is really reflected in the approach of justice sector donors. And and it's based on conventional, liberal, peace-building, state-building logic. The idea is that if a transitional justice policy can enhance judicial capacity and people are trained um, and educated in what proper legal systems look like and what human rights are, um, then the rule of law will be strengthened and the chances of conflict uh, occurring again in the future will reduce and so forth. So both transitional justice stories objectify Acholi justice needs around very false dichotomies of, you know, the local versus the international, restorative versus retributive, and so forth, and and posit this notion of, of a non-Western local order against the Western liberal order, and you'll all be very familiar with these with these debates, and it's led to what Alexander calls uh, Alexander Hinton calls identity shrinkage. I think so. On the one hand, these ethno justice conceptions of transitional justice are clear examples of cultural relativism. The argument is that the Acholi should both follow and be defined by their culture. And on the other hand, the liberal transitional justice paradigm implies this single fundamental human identity in which people exist as autonomous subjects and they have the capacity to achieve and enjoy freedom and equality and rights and so forth, just as soon as the moment is right. And both of these identity categories are, are idealised, they both gloss over the very ambivalent and ambiguous choices that people make, um, and the actions that they have to take in, in the context of their post-conflict um, everyday lives. And what's been missing from the debate so far, I think in Uganda and maybe in other contexts, is a real understanding of what um, Oliver Richmond refers to as the, as the local local. So that which represents the local beyond the artifice of of these socially constructed identities. And it's it's much harder for researchers to capture. But um, it's really what I've been interested in in examining with with my own research. So what is the local local in transitional justice in northern Uganda? Well, I just wanted to, to quote from a... Senior, an interview I, I did with a senior, actually a CHOLI a member of a staff at, at a big, at one of the big donor offices in, in Kampala, and he'd been working with the justice law and order sector on trying to put together this national transitional justice policy. But he could see some very big problems with the conventional approach. Um, and he said to me, and, and I quote, resolving transitional issues is a priority for people, but not the way donors understand it. In a choli, a lot of time is spent on resolving tensions related to the conflict. This is a key framework through which people are negotiating life. But that is not the transitional justice which is discussed in public forums in Kampala and Gulu. And if you're looking for that, you're missing something. So his point was that transitional justice as a set of pre-articulated conceptions was not the right entry point through which to explore or let alone understand the dynamics of post-conflict justice in in everyday life and and different forms of social repair. And for me, it was these transitional dilemmas that I really wanted to understand. And I wanted to understand how people were negotiating them without the kind of conceptual baggage of transitional justice, if you like. And Northern Uganda likes likes context, similar context elsewhere, actually, is particularly interesting in this regard, because um, land and its people confronted in extremis, I think. Um, two dilemmas associated with the context, uh, with 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 the complexity of uh, post um, sorry, post-Cold war post sorry post Cold War uh, conflicts. So, firstly, mass violence is often perpetrated by um, civilians um, who knew one another, neighbours and relatives, and who, in the aftermath of war, you know, victims and, and, and perpetrators have had to coexist. But also, actually, those who carried out the violent acts. Um, as members of the LRA and even those who suffered them, the victim-perpetrator categories don't quite fit. There are kind of these moral grey zones um, that that are very hard to capture. So what's quite clear, I think, is that post-conflict life in northern Uganda, as a result, is highly strained and and is regulated by what I call these political economies of survival. And I, I understand these to be the range of, of customs, of practices, of knowledge that individuals deploy on a daily basis to <coughs> ensure really the basic functioning of meaningful and productive social and economic relations as well as cosmological and spiritual balance which are very important in that context. And I think these systems and the ideas that shape them, they mustn't be romanticized of course but they do need to be understood and in my research and what I just talk about now for for the rest of the talk, really, are the the real um, frictions or tensions between orthodox transitional justice narratives and the lived realities of a post-conflict life in in a Churley land, shaped as they are by these political economies of survival. So there's there's four major tensions. And the first one was um, between transitional justice as an episodic response to mass violence and the everyday requirement to self-secure against the background <coughs> of profound structural inequality. So it's certainly the case that in discussions about wartime wrongdoing and injustice, people, and I don't think one person made spontaneous reference to the need for criminal justice processes or institutionalized truth-seeking, um, but this is not a kind of uh, culture, I don't, I don't see this as a kind of a result of entrenched views about tradition or anything like that it's a very pragmatic reaction to local circumstances because how could these interventions directly address very basic and urgent needs um, and in the absence of trusted state intervention into daily lives people are and always have been preoccupied with what James Darby calls self-securing and this involves reacting sort of quickly and creatively to hostile surroundings So in a Chile land, for example, you find that such modes of coping often involve things such as informal welfare. So to give an example, during fieldwork, when I asked people um, to reflect on how individuals and communities are coping in the aftermath of wrongdoing on such a huge scale, most people pointed to the presence of local cooperative village groups based on systems that predated the war. So in three of my research sites, for example, there were farmers' groups Um, groups, particularly among women, that would get together and help each other, you know, dig and cultivate the fields. Um, And the women explained that this had been a really effective way for them of coping with poverty, but also with their memories of conflict. And one explained, you know, in the process, we talk in our small groups, we dig together, and then we make development decisions. And these kinds of things, they help us to forget, and these activities release us, they bring us together. And in the process, this forces unity among us. And across these sites, um, I also witnessed the presence of um, what are called bull cup, which uh, is the Acholi term for village savings and loans uh, schemes or associations. And again, they have a long history in the area. So in one place, this, uh, this, the, 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 the savings and loan um, association was very graphically named to help the dead who were boiled. And this was in a in a part of Acholi land where there had been an LRA massacre, which um, involved the kind of chopping up and, and boiling of, of victims. But this, this particular group, so this particular group is named after this incident, and it's and it involves you know victims, um, and uh, it's a kind of strategy by which people get together and try and try and help each other cope with um, you know sort of all the deprivations that that are suffered um, in post conflict life. And it's described really as a key means by which people live together peacefully, by which they can support each other. And in Gulu district, there was a group called I Feel Pain, which began in 2002 as a way of enabling members again to cope with life um, and become more economically self-reliant. The two are very obviously very interlinked. So experiences of moving um, through post-conflict life were described without reference to what Veena does famously called Grand Gestures and instead people talked um, about the constructive ways that they could engage on on a personal and a communal level to generate enough material and social capital to survive daily challenges. And what's interesting is that NGOs really understand the power of these informal groupings, and they've tried to harness them actually in their own efforts to promote transitional justice across the region. So in two sites, in Atiak and in Lekodi, Lekodi is actually the site where Dominic Ongwen, who's currently on trial at the ICC, um, allegedly um, orchestrated a particularly gruesome massacre. But in two of these sites, um, survivor, so- survivor associations have been set up by donor-funded a donor-funded Gulu-based NGO. And they've been formed from existing um, saving and loan schemes. Um, and they've been established to ostensibly to give uh, local people a voice on transitional justice issues, so the groups are offered trainings or sensitization is the term that's used um, on the the technical aspects of the agreement on um, accountability and reconciliation. But what I found is that while both of these survivor associations definitely spoke the language of transitional justice to a much greater degree than elsewhere, it was also quite evident that this wasn't straightforward mimicry of donor or NGO agendas. So group members had to reframe many of the lessons that had been imparted in these NGO-led trainings towards local priorities when they went back to the villages. And in both Lukodi and Atiak, for example, survivor associations um, had helped lobby for and maintain memorial sites. Um, and these were places where annual remembrance prayers were held. And in Atiak in particular, the Survivor Association was really cross with the NGO that was kind of supporting it and explained that it actually boycotted the remembrance prayers in 2012 because it was cross about the way in which the occasion was being curated. And particularly they disapproved of what they called the exploitative use of victim testimony. And they requested that, you know, in subsequent um, years that has to be removed because they they didn't want. One of the women said to me, "You know, we didn't want it to be like that, where some victim gets up and has to tell everyone these awful things that happened to them, and then she breaks down and she cries. We don't want that. We we need scholarships for our children. We need a government school. And in Lakodi the memorial was conceptualized in a very similar way as a sort of symbolic reference point for community demands and, and concessions. So, the survivor association was was really set up um, or." It, was seen as something that might be helpful because it was some it was an organization that perhaps or as a means by which people might be able to secure practical support for development purposes. Um, and the in fact the chairman of Lakodi's Association said to me, you know, until I could explain to, to people the potential of the group to achieve these things, then they really saw it as nothing very helpful. And I think part of the issue is that um, as one young man in East and Land explained to me, but it's a very common thing to hear, was that you know we're trying to forget the pain of the past, we're trying to move on, but there's this other disease and that's poverty. And the problem now is poverty, we're all in poverty. And I think there was in this sentiment that, again, is widely shared across research sites, there's a refusal to honor these kind of historical breaks between war and peace that the external analysts I- impose. So the notion of transition is said to be, you know, it's far too clear cut to adequate, adequately express The structural deprivations that really fasten the past to the present. So while transitional justice places emphasis on these exceptional, these moments of exceptional physical violence, such as massacres, these often these key events are not the main kind of axis, uh, you know, of life for for people. They're 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 episodic instances of extreme uh, suffering um, that punctuate really a kind of permanent state of sustained neglect, of discrimination, of insecurity and so forth. And so I think the everyday lens allows us to think about the ways in which individuals and communities develop tactics to, to ameliorate um, these routine deprivations. And I think international policymakers do have very little grasp of this. So the, the second major friction I- that I identified was between normative transitional justice ideas of justice, of, of forgiveness and of reconciliation And then the pragmatic, very pragmatic contingencies that determine whether or not post conflict coexistence between victims, perpetrators, victim perpetrators is possible. So donor driven government and NGO programs on transitional justice in Uganda often use a very normative language that assumes causal links between process and outcome. So in donor offices in Kampala, staff will emphasize that accountability for human rights violations and war crimes will strengthen the rule of law across northern Uganda. And local religious and political leaders, on the other hand, they have a different um, approach. They'll argue that no forgiveness is a core transitional justice principle in the Ugandan context that the Amnesty Act is an expression of a truly cultural values of mercy, and this is going to lead to peace. And of course, there's important ontological and epistemological differences between these different transitional justice agendas, but what they both represent is a, is a heavily mediated and sometimes coercive ideal-type response to mass atrocity and, and the reconstruction of social relations. And in reality, what, what, what I found is that post-conflict interactions between LRA returnees, so between people that have come back from fighting in the bush, between returnees and non-returnees um, are shaped much more by, by these political economies of survival. So across research sites, the most relevant issue to people in discussions about LRA returnees was rarely actually the act of wrongdoing committed in the bush or in the past, but actually their behaviour in the present. So communal acceptance was conditional on an ability to exhibit what was described as normal behaviour. And the role of the community seemed to be to to enforce a kind of collective post-conflict moral code. So people regularly made distinctions between those returnees who had settled home well and, and, and those who, no, they didn't settle home well. They're stealing from people's gardens, they're refusing to dig, they're threatening people with comments like, you know, if you treat me like this, I'm going to use those methods that I used in the bush, and so forth. And people explained that those who settled well exhibited these two sort of important attributes. Um, The first is productivity, and the second is inconspicuousness. Um, So one reverend in in Gulu district said to me, you know, they have to dig and they have to stay quiet. Um, So the former will will help ease the burden of your presence on, you know, conflict-affected and resource-stretched families, because you're going to be productive, you're going to contribute. And, And the latter being inconspicuous in a way that that's going to reassure people that you you haven't picked up violent or threatening habits in the bush and you're not infected with chen, which are the bad and... and uh, um, in Achele cosmology, these are the bad and vengeful spirits of the dead who haven't been properly buried and so forth. So the problem that many returnees face is that they, they actually lack control over the extent to which their presence might bring... Um, what one elderly woman referred to as disharmony to the village. So particularly, particular individuals represent a significant strain um, on already fractured family structures. So particularly women who return to their villages with children born in captivity, they face particular cha- challenges because the patrilineal descent of these children is often unclear and customary payments to sanction the relationship between the mother and father, of course, has almost never been paid. So a very common thing you hear from the community is we want our daughters back, but not these Bush children. So I think in general, social relationships that have always been strained even before the war, um, for example, between co-wives or, or, or for children with, with unclear patrilineal descent, they've become increasingly so as people's status as a returnee, for example, can be can be instrumentalised and used against them. Um, so transitional justice rhetoric that presents sort of causal linkages between process and outcome, I think, obscures the everyday pressures that, that really shape these post-conflict relationships. And I don't think these are mitigated in a very straightforward way by amnesty certificates or criminal trials or even, you know, these donor-funded reconciliation rituals. Um, because the struggle to restore a sense of social order, of meaningful coexistence is so profound, it's so labyrinthine, and really influenced by the the realities of poverty and and other immediate challenges linked to competition over scarce resources such as land and and the spiritual world. Which actually, uh, the spiritual world, this brings me to a third major friction I found, which was really between the materiality of conventional transitional justice discourse and the central importance, the absolutely central importance of spirituality in identifying wrongdoing and appeasing it. So transitional justice, um, kind of conventional, orthodox transitional justice, um, and lots of people have written about this, it envisages this kind of linear um, notion of time. So there's a before and an after, so violence is history, and um, resolution exists in, in the present and in the future. And this conception of time, and Victor Agreed has written about this in the context of post-conflict Mozambique, um, really fascinating um, stuff that he's produced, um, this conception of time really contrasts with the, what he calls the multiple temporalities that people experience in their everyday lives. And what this means is that for many, wartime violence is ever-present, and it intervenes both in predictable and in unpredictable ways, um through these Chen, through these these unhappy spirits, usually of people who have died violently without a proper burial or who had some kind of physical connection with the place where bad things have happened. Um, and in a Choliland, Chen and spirits of the dead, they, they, they kind of they transcend and dissolve these, these barriers of linear time and they really give form to people's daily experience. And one man in in, in um in Gulu district dis- destra- describe the unburied bones quite vividly as unexploded ordinances. So the way that spirits intervene can be as violent and, and as disturbing and sudden as, as the violence perpetrated by living combatants during the conflict. And it's, uh, I think something that, particularly donors, have, it's very difficult territory for them. They find find this stuff quite hard to, to, to process. Um, but ritual action is used is used widely, not uniformly, but widely across Acholi land in an attempt to, to cleanse and to appease these spirits and to heal the cosmological legacy of the war. And a common idea across Acholi land is, um, if if misfortune isn't cleansed, if, if spirits aren't cleansed, um, then you know misfortune kind of you know it, it, it self propagates. Um, but the point is, I think, that this cosmological insecurity, it's dealt with in very hybrid, um, very fluid ways. So there was one case in Western O'Chirley Land where there was a boarding school and people were saying that there's been these problems because there are spirits who are strangling the teachers and the students at night. And they gave these... This school had been a barracks during the war and they gave these extremely gruesome accounts of you know, the kind of symptoms of the strangling and people's eyes popping out and stuff. And... So it was very, you know, it was very urgent, considered a very urgent situation. So that the head teacher called the executive committee of the school together and it was decided that before turning to traditional processes, so before speaking to elders and so forth, um, the group should just pray together. Um, and according to everyone, these prayers had successfully um, resolved the problem at the school and actually this was very good because money's, You know, money is very important to mobilize traditional activities, but prayer can be done at no cost. Um, So clearly I think the liberal transitional justice paradigm, the kind of stuff that is in the UN manuals, is very ill-equipped to deal with the dynamics of spiritual practice in contexts like northern Uganda. Because the kinds of approaches to transitional justice that are advocated by international agencies are distinctively secular, um, and even where cultural and religious factors are acknowledged, and they often are, and, and, and it's not the point that that you know donors in the UN want to exclude this stuff, they do try and incorporate it. But they do it in a way that they kind of, I think, assume that this stuff can be modified and kind of harnessed in some material way to, to, to a to broader, more conventional, more legible transitional justice agenda. So the UN talks of the need to develop strategies to take advantage of informal systems and even the World Bank advocates, you know, let's draw on the capacities of traditional community leaders and structures but let's pull them gradually in in the direction of respect for equity and international norms. And in a land this has been a very common practice amongst donors and NGOs, so external support has been provided for public rituals aimed at forgiveness where eggs are broken and, and, and things like that and and, and and also for the revival of a chiefly authority um, structure to oversee such processes. So this was in two thousand six onwards, this was it's not so much the case anymore, but there was a lot of interest in, in funding these kinds of things. And at the time critics expressed this real serious concern that no, you know, in trying to codify these practices, we're engaging or donors are engaging in an invention of tradition and also that this is going to um, you know reinforce. Um, post-conflict modes of hierarchy, um, but actually that hasn't really uh, so much been the case, and I think it's partly because um, these systems have really failed to to resonate, um, and that's that's partly because I think the arguments that this would reinforce patriarchy is actually um, it undermines local agency. People could see that these were, you know, these were kind of these were projects that were tacked on to. Um, you know more conventional programming, and they didn 't really address um, the spiritual dimensions of uh, of post conflict life that, um, that that people were really concerned with and I think part of the problem is that of course it 's very difficult to distill and codify these kinds of systems because they are entire meaning systems you know they 're not just things that can be tacked on um, I've just, in the last five minutes or so, I'll just talk about one, one final tension, um, which is, and it's sort of the biggest, well, I'm not sure if it's the biggest one, but it's the hardest to, to, to sort of summarise. Um, but it's between what, what I call um, governable justice sites. So those kind of justice sites that are regulated locally by acknowledged public authorities, such as elders, such as local councillors. Um, and sites of ungovernable justice, so international and domestic state-run courts that people do generally regard as distant and unfamiliar. And that's not to say that people don't, 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 don't support the ICC or don't support the trial of Thomas Coyello. Actually, it's very mixed. Um, but the, there's a lot of complexity there, and I think even when people do support those trials, they still see those institutions as... Distant as kind of out of their, out, way outside of their jurisdiction. So I think what's interesting about a lot of transitional justice scholarship is that we don't ever really engage with ordinary justice. Um, and so we try and understand how transitional justice might function or might work or what the best kind of agenda might be in a particular place without really analysing what came before um, or what exists now. Um, in terms of dispute resolution, or it seems to be a, a significant gap. So I was quite interested in trying to understand ordinary justice in the Chile land. And what I was really struck by was actually the highly contingent nature of justice decisions in post-conflict acholi land. So, I mean, I was looking at the way in which post-conflict type tensions are resolved, particularly around land, but. The research, I think, suggested that, actually, a decision to refer a dispute and seek redress is normally premised on, on three things. So the first is available information. Um, the second is a realistic assessment of a, of a tolerable outcome. And the third is the consequences of that outcome on um, moral, cosmological, social, economic stability. What, what my colleague Holly Porter in this context refers to as social harmony. So then, you know, what are the implications of all of this for transitional justice in a Shirley land? And I think it's the uncertainty relating to these, three premi- to these three premises that really complicates people's attitudes towards the transitional justice framework as laid out in the Agreement on Accountability and Reconciliation. So whether or not amnesties or trials or truth-telling or external funding for donor rituals, whether or not these are sensible options remains very unresolved. Um, and when asked people seem to stress I think both the complex implications of these processes but also their lack of, of power in shaping their direction so you get very different answers to, to the same questions and the local is, is, is obviously very far from being homogenous so to give you one example um, during a discussion with this, with this elderly woman in eastern Acholi land in quite a remote part of the region she explained that um, since the end of the war, since everyone had come home, petty theft was, was a really major security issue that's affecting her life. And it's being perpetrated, she says, by these young men who've they've grown up in the displacement camps, because lots of these kids were born in the camps and they really did grow up there because these camps were around for such a long time. So this theft of these young guys are coming into her hut and they're stealing things because they can't be bothered to work. And she said to me that these guys, and she knows who they are, these these criminals, they need to be reported to the police, and she's going to do it, and then she wants them to be punished, and preferably she wants them to go to prison and be fined. But this really jarred with an earlier part of the interview where she expressed her desire to forgive LRA perpetrators for the violent crimes that they would committed, even against her own family. And two of her sons um, and her husband were killed by the LRA. And then when this apparent contradiction is explored a bit further, she explained, um, She explained that this is, uh, no, this is a quotation from, from the interview. She said, these are two different things. The ones who killed on a larger scale, like Joseph Coney, should his life be lost because all the others he killed, it doesn't make up for the loss of life that he caused. The impression we have is that it's beyond our means. The LRA killed two of my children and my husband, but one of them lives with us here in the village now, and there's nothing I can do. They just come and they settle down. But that other person, that thief, he came and he stole my things, and it's good to punish him because those thieves have taken my things three times now. Those of Kony and his group are different, but this case of mine, it's from the home. And then when pressed further on whether or not she would support a trial for Joseph Coney, say if he were captured, again, she's emphasised that this issue is too far from home, metaphorically speaking. So she, again, she, and this is her, we're, we're people at a household level and we do not have power over that. If it was marriage, if Coney wanted to marry one of my daughters, I would not accept it. The f- kind of forgiveness I might grant him would be that he cannot marry from my home, that would be impossible, I could never accept, but he can come and dig. And I think, you know, her response expressed her feelings towards the LRA LRA leadership through the institutions such as marriage, over which she felt she had some jurisdiction and some control. Um, And it also did highlight this broader tendency. It did come up again and again, this broader tendency to make distinctions between governable and ungovernable justice spaces. But what was interesting as well is that people framed their powerlessness in in kind of oppositional terms, you know, against the agency that they possessed in their in their immediate locales. so and and because of this, it actually became more apparent as a strategy, and and it's well captured by Roger McGuinty, what he calls non-participation. So across research sites in Acholiland, there are two forms of non-participation which were very apparent in relation to transitional justice. And the first surfaced in discussions about crimes committed by the LRA and was a form of, um, of, of what McGinty calls voluntary non-participation. And this is the rational choice utilitarian calculation that participation is not going to bring any benefits. So because people rarely identify a clear link between accountability for LRA war crimes and material improvements or greater security in their own lives, they sort of actively disengage from the topic on the basis that, you know, keeping a low profile will better serve um, a lo- the long-term goal of, of accommodation. And McGuinty talks about this in, in, his, in, in, in his paper. and uh, Not about Uganda, but it's an interesting idea, this idea of non-participation, I think. Um, so it's not uncommon to hear people bat away suggestions of, you know, particularly criminal accountability for LRA perpetrators with these comments like, oh, you know, I have no problem with the LRA, just let them come here and, so that we can have peace. So I think this, this suggests a degree of agency, but it's often combined, I think, with another sense of involuntary participation. And that really comes to the fore during discussions about Ugandan government and army war crimes. Um, and accountability, and people express a very strong desire to see the, Ugover- the Ugandan government and army uh, soldiers prosecuted for war crimes, um, and and even and, and, and for theft. But these remarks are always caveated with these assertions of powerless, powerlessness. So you know we would like this, but we have no power over these things, and in any way it would never happen under current political circumstances. So I think while government and UPDF um, accountability was this kind of almost like this aspirational desire, it's a kind of a vision, or it would represent a vision of a more equitable political future, LRA prosecutions represented, I think, to people something far more ambiguous and and potentially destabilising. And I think perhaps this is because the prospect of the latter was more real um, and more likely potentially to unsettle the ground upon which... A very relative peace is is believed to to rest, and because the likelihood of instrumentalisation and manipulation by the state in these kinds of prosecutions was more immediate. So I think, I'm running out of time now, but I I suppose just to sort of sum up really in relation to this, that I think state-led transitional justice processes, as promoted by donors and the justice law and order sector in Uganda, and as laid out in the accountability Um, and reconciliation framework that was signed at Juba. I think these kinds of processes are somewhat of a red herring to to, to most people. And and this is not because of a cultural aversion to formal institutionalized justice. And it's not fatalistic either, but it's very pragmatic. It's based on a very clear understanding of the hegemony of the the, the national resistance, uh, of the NRM, of the Ugandan government, and its narrative about the LRA war. So it's not considered people don't consider it wise or practical to, to separate the proposed processes from the deeply unequal political environment in which they would operate um, because I think to equate transitional justice with peace with accountability with, reconcilia- with reconciliation with healing this would be to implicitly assume that you know there is equitable governance um, in northern Uganda <coughs> and people understandably uh, rarely make that, that assumption. So I think I'll stop there because it's eight minutes to six and I've probably gone a little bit over. Um, yeah I'll I'll stop. Thank you. <laughs>